Hey, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show is the chronicle of my four decades in endurance sports, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. And I sure have met my share. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. On today's show, I have the distinct honor to chat with a giant in the sport of ultramarathoning. My friend Marcy Schwamm is one of the most decorated and accomplished ultra-distance runners of all time. A true pioneer in her sport, her list of firsts is nearly as long as her list of world records. Six world records, by the way. And the funny thing is, running wasn't her thing as a kid. A tennis prodigy at an early age, she nearly became a professional tennis player. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about the reality of women's sports before Title IX, the mix-up with her bib at her first Boston Marathon, her proudest accomplishment in the sport of ultramarathoning, and her secrets to successful aging. So, here she is, Marcy Schwann. Hey, Marcy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Good to see you. It's really good. It's really good to see you as well. Um, uh, you know, the last the last two years have have really put a crimp in everyone's style in terms of uh, getting together uh, at events. Um, and so social media certainly has allowed us to stay connected, um, but it's not quite the same as uh, as as seeing each other in person uh, at events. And we you and I just haven't we haven't had the opportunity to see each other a lot in the last two no. years. No, or or many other people for that matter. Well, that's that's a that's a very that's a very very good point. Um, although uh, as a as a race director and a and a and a competitor myself, um, seems to me that 2022 is looking up. Uh, in, in terms of yeah, in terms of sort of getting back uh, into the swing of things. Well, uh, as I was thinking about uh, how to make your introduction, it it occurred to me that that you are one of those individuals that really needs no introduction because of all the things that you've accomplished. Uh, and yet, and yet at the time that you were accomplishing these amazing things, uh, social media didn't exist. Uh, right. and so, and so, and so, you know, your, uh, your, uh, your, your resume, from an ultra marathoning standpoint, certainly needs no introduction. Um, but you sort of need an introduction because you were doing amazing things at a time in which there wasn't social media and, and the word really, really, you know, hadn't, it was much more difficult, you know, yep. to get the word out sure. uh, uh, about these things. So, so let me, let, let, let me, let me do my best then to, uh, to sort of quickly give the introduction. Um, I mean, I, as I see it, um, you really are a, a pioneer in, in, in women's running, specifically women's ultra distance running. Um, over, your, uh, over your competitive uh, uh, lifetime, you won over 30 ultras and set six world records during the time that you were a, a highly competitive athlete. And by the way, these ultra distance world records were everything from the 50K distance uh, up to six days. So, um, you know, 
<laughs> so it, it occurs to me that you are you are really one of the most accomplished, least known figures in American sports. Yes. Why do you think that I, is? Um, I think it's I, I think very little attention was placed on um, long distance running beyond the marathon in the in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, it was kind of an eclectic group. And there wasn't there wasn't much there wasn't much attention placed on it. And and again, you know, there, there, this precedes ultra running magazine. It precedes social media. Um, it precedes women or men, for that matter, not being looked at as some, you know, oddball dressed strangely running for periods of time. And even though there were great events, it was very it was many of the same people going to the same events, depending whether you lived on the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, you know, I fortunately had the experience of living on both coasts. So um, I got to participate with the West Coast crowd on the trails in California and, and, and Washington and the East Coast crowd on, you know, on the Catskills and the trails in, in, in New York. Um, I just I don't think it was considered a real sport. To be quite honest with you, I think it was, um, you know, endurance sports. It, it's like swimming the English Channel. It wasn't really considered a sport. Swimming to Cuba from Florida wasn't really considered a sport at the time. Well, I mean, a, 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 as you know, um, you know, the, the, there is the, the, the famous running boom of the 1970s in which in which participation in running uh, as a recreational sport skyrocketed, um, skyrocketed. Um, mostly mostly as a as a as a means to fitness rather than a competitive pursuit. It's Correct. my understanding that early on um, um, running events um, you know, in, in the, you know, the late sixties, early seventies were, um, I mean, they, they were, they were limited to sort of private events. Like you had to be a club member in order to participate in, in, in some of these events. And, and so while the sport of, of, of the participation in running increased significantly, um, r running as a competitive sport, the, 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 look, I, here, here in New England, we are accustomed um, to having a very full event calendar, you know, on, on any given weekend here in New England, right there, there are there are dozens of different running related events for us to choose from, and and they are open to all comers. They are not limited to you know exclusive exclusive members. But that ne wasn't necessarily always the case, and so competitive running, you know, was a sub niche of the running boom. <laughs> and then ultra distance running was a sub niche of that sub niche, you know, it, correct. It, it, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, back pre internet, which you know, there are a lot of people that really still have a hard time understanding that there was a pre internet, but there was a pre internet, pre internet, <laughs> uh, and pre ultra runner running magazine. Um, how did you find out about these events? How, how did you, uh, how did the word spread about how did the word spread about an event? How did you know that events were coming up? Was there a was there a race calendar? How, how did you know? I wouldn't even say there was a race calendar. I think it's, um, you know, if I look back 
when I lived in New York and, and might have run, or actually, I, I should say, it really, it really started with um, Lake Tahoe being one of the, you know, first major ultras that, that I ran. And that was literally word of mouth in San Francisco, knowing that it existed and no woman had ever done it before. So from there, once you kind of got into that niche, you found out about other events on assorted race calendars. So within, within the Bay Area and San Francisco, you kind of learned what other ultras there were up and down the, the uh, California coast. When I came back to New York, the New York Roadrunners Club had already established a number of um, ultras, which led again to subsequent events. Still, um, not not uh, not off road yet. But once you got into that sort of group, you know your your groupies would would let you know what was coming. I mean, I'd have to say, you know, on the West Coast, we kind of followed each other around from event to event, and on the East Coast, um, I would say New York at the time was probably um, you know, the New York Roadrunners Club and um, the Brooklyn teams, Forest Park, Queens, those those organizations, older running clubs that knew about ultras, once you got into that clicky group, you found out about it. And it, and it really, you know, you have to remember, too, women didn't run the marathon in the Olympics until 1984. So pre-1984, you know, we were we were still considered, um, you know, you, you would lose your reproductive organs if you ran beyond the 10K. So um, a lot of it was really, you know, kind of underground learning through learning through friends, learning through others that these events existed. And then the popularity did pick up after, you know, after 1984, for the most part. Yeah, it's it it, it has to be an interesting uh, phenomena where, you know, you are you are getting into a sport uh, in which there you really have no predecessors. You have you have no one to look up to because you are you and your peers were the first to do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you essentially were writing the book on ultra distance racing for women. You were writing the book at the same time that you were competing in these events. I I say writing the book figuratively, but, 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 but there really, you didn't have predecessors necessarily. No, not not really. I mean, we were all kind of starting at the same time. And I think the thing is, is you also were the one who had the target on your back. Because if you were if you were the lone female in an event um, and you did well, that was that was the bar. So that was what everybody chased. So you spent a good a good portion of your competitive ultra career um, with the target on your back. That was you know that was the standard because because there wasn't a standard previous to that. I, I shouldn't say it. There were there were standards. But if you broke them, you became the new target. Right. Yeah. That 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 makes that makes total sense. So so in a sense, not only were you racing any other 
woman that might show up to the event, but you were literally, you were literally racing and competing against the, the, the biases uh, and prejudice of, of most of the male competitors in the, in the event as well, who I'm sure some of them didn't quite understand what you were doing there. Uh, and, and it didn't make much sense to them. And I, I mean, the, I suspect the running community, uh, currently is, and probably always has been somewhat accepting. Um, but there, there, I know, and we'll get into some. We'll get into a story later on uh, about some of your male competitors, maybe not necessarily being as understanding about about these these groundbreaking women uh, making strides in this sport. Right, and I think you know your your friends and you know the 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 guys that you got close to that you trained with or spent time with um, are are a whole different group. You know, they were and still are, you know, 40, 50 years later, um, you know, still, still some of my friends that I keep in touch with that we, um, those of us that are still vertical, um, you know, every so often bang into each other or, or, or kind of through social media, know, know what's going on. It was more the um, outside looking in I think that was less accepting, quite honestly. Yeah, interesting. So, so outside, outside of the, uh, of of the participant field, um, it, it, an important piece of American um, uh, political legislation turns fifty years old this year. Um, the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act otherwise known as Title IX, right. uh, was enacted by Congress and signed into law by President Richard Nixon in 1972. Um, you know, now, two generations of women have benefited from that legislation, it, including my wife and, yeah. my two, and my two daughters. Right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, you, um, you, are, you are experienced enough to have, to have, to have lived and competed uh, and participated in sports pre-Title IX. So I'm, I'm really curious to get your take on um, what, what women's sports, and I ask this because, you know, there's, there's an entire generation now, you know, almost two generations of female ultra distance runners who have, who really have no experience of, of, of what it was like before Title IX. Um, But, but, but you do. You 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 know what it was like pre pre Title IX. So I, I'm curious to get your take on on what 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 the landscape was like for women in sports, particularly yeah. uh, ultra running, but all sports pre Title IX. Yeah, I think you have to go. I think you have to go beyond you know running because running was really the the rarity. So you know if you if you look back like you know if I look back in high school, I I played all the seasonal sports that were available to women. So field hockey, volleyball, softball, and basketball. And that was still when women were allowed to be dribbles. Um, then that slowly changed. In, in my um, town school, there was no cross country or track and field for women. There was no tennis for women. Um, you, it, there, there was no equity you, you played those sports that um, were available. When I got to college, <clears throat> there still was no women's cross country team. I just was friends with the guys because I was already running. There was women's tennis and 
um, other traditional collegiate sports, but there still was no women's cross country or women's track and field, even, even when I graduated college, that still had not started. Um, so you, you learn very quickly that, you know, you, you, there was a sport to play, but there were the inequities that came with it. You know, if there's a field in a college, women got it at an oddball time of day or a selected time of day. If there was a court, you got it, you know, again, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the priority. So you were always kind of the second class um, in in sport, really, through you know through the seven. I mean, certainly through the sixties, and even through the seventies. I mean, title when Title Nine came in, it came in. It was you know it, through the legislature, but it wasn't it wasn't enacted everywhere. It wasn't followed everywhere. You know, Ivy League sports certainly didn't all of a sudden bow down to women's women's sports. In, in running, um, even in road races. I mean, when I ran, when I ran my first road race or, or first cross country race, that was the first year that they actually let girls run. So it, it, th those things were just not available. So if it wasn't available, you really didn't pay that much attention to it. You shifted your energy to an, another sport. I, you know, I question my, myself. I mean, I set out to play professional tennis, even though I'd been, I've been running for 56 years. If when I was younger, was I exposed to competitive running, I probably would have gone off in that direction, even though tennis was my, you know, favorite sport, because to me, it was also an individual sport. You only needed the one person on the other side of the net. So it's, you know, there, there's, there's so much that has changed and, and, and happened. But at the same time, I also feel that, again, politically incorrect, that women should be doing comparable things to the men. For instance, there is no reason in tennis why women are not playing five sets. So if you want the prize money, you should be playing five sets. And, and that, you know, blaming it on media, blaming it on everything. I've been very outspoken for that for 40 something years. Um, there's no reason why women can't play five sets, especially in championship matches. So even there is an inequity. Most women, especially at that level, would want to play as competitively. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, we've made a lot of advances. Clearly, the industry's made a lot of advances. Um, you know, there were no women's running shoes per se when I started running. There were no women's running shorts until mid seventies, maybe. Um, so, you know, lot, lots and lots and lots of things have changed. But um, you know, you were pretty much kind of tooth and nail and, and bare grit in the late sixties, seventies, mid seventies. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's what what's what's interesting is that. Uh, it, I mean, I think it was just very recently that um, that the uh, U.S. women's soccer team yes. was, was was awarded a large financial settlement, right? Um, because they were arguing correctly that they yes. should be paid the same as the U.S. men's 
soccer yeah. program. Uh, and so <laughs> curious, right? 50 years later, and women are still fighting for for equity uh, and equality. You know, this, and of course, you know, this this issue came to light in a sport that's near and dear to to, to us, and that's the sport of mountain running, which just right. a few just a few years ago. Um, uh, eventually leveled the playing field, so to speak, with respect to the number of male and female athletes that would be invited uh, to the World Mountain Running Championships, uh, and also the um, um, uh, equaling the the distance that uh, the, per- yeah. the participants ran as well. And that was just a couple of years ago. Right. Um, and and yet, yeah, t- I mean, to to your point. The legislation was enacted and signed into law, um, but it was challenged in the courts for many years to follow. In fact, the NCAA at one point challenged Title IX. The, yes. the case was dismissed, um, <laughs> but but it, it, you know it, it wasn't it wasn't widely embraced. Um, the moment that Nixon put uh, pen to paper, absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, so. Not long after, not long after that that legislation was signed, you you were still a student at Indiana University of Pennsylvania um, when you yes. ran your first Boston Marathon. Yes, in nineteen in nineteen seventy three. Now that nineteen seventy three, only one year earlier in nineteen seventy two, were women uh, uh, invited to participate right. in the event. So you you ran the Boston Marathon again the the, the year after the BAA yep. finally started uh, finally started um, in inviting women to participate. Uh, as I was reading some of the history of that, I found it I, I found it fascinating and and also you know, sort of a sign of the times that um, when race bibs were uh, mailed out. They were mailed out in either the color blue to represent men or the color pink to represent women. The color pink. Yep. And in fact, yep. when you received your bib in the mail, you received a blue bib with the name Mark, not Marcy. Right. They left off the Y. Right. So, so tell me, Which, tell me, unto, unto okay, himself, do, do, do you think that that was, was that intentional? Was that accidentally, you know, on purposely, on purpose by mistake? What, what's your read on that? You know, it's hard, it's hard to 12, it's hard to tell. I was F12 was the number finally given to me and you got your little postcard and you, you know, go into Boston and when I showed up with a blue card, I wasn't allowed in because it was the wrong side of um, the the gym to to pick up your to pick up your actual number. And it, and if it wasn't for Gloria Ratty, who you know unfortunately recently passed away, who'd been with the BAA for really the past forty nine years or forty eight years. Um, I, I wouldn't have gotten an official number because they were so, you know, they they were they were awful to put it quite honestly. I mean, I I climbed through a window in the facility to get to where the numbers were. And Gloria helped me get my, you know, my correct number. Um 
and there were only 12, the, I think there were only 12 of us that year and I was F12. That's correct. So there were, there were, there were you 12, know, I mean, a lot, lot of, a lot of things changed, but, you know, still for many, many, many years, even after that, really, um, even as women started, yeah, I mean, and even, and even as numbers and participation and it opened, there certainly wasn't, um, you know, the most pleasing restrooms, the most pleasing places to change, um, getting out to hot. It was, it was all, it was all different. I mean, absolutely. Did it change very quickly? It, it did. I mean, once it, once it started to roll and really, um, you know, even pre even pre 84, I mean, you know, I have to look at people like Jacqueline Hansen and, and Nina Cusick that really did so much for the Boston marathon to get women to be acknowledged, um, in the forthcoming years that it, that it did, it did, it did change. Um, and, but, you know, think of, think of all the years, how old the Boston marathon is and it took until 1972 for it to be official. Uh, it's, it, it's a, it's a really, really good point. And, you know, sp speaking of the, speaking of the increase in, in female participation, um, I, I looked this stat up as, as well. So the, uh, you're right. the the year that the year that you did the Boston Marathon, 1973, there were 12 women starters. In 2019, there were 13,684 right women starters. Um, and so, um, clearly, the, the the growth in participation uh, in 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 the Boston Marathon for for women has been has been robust. But it wasn't easy to get there. To your point, I'm I'm curious what you remember uh, about that about that first Boston Marathon. Everyone seems to have a interesting story. Of course, <laughs> you getting to the start of the of that first Boston Marathon is an incredibly interesting story. But I'm curious what what you remember about about the race itself once once it once it did get started. I, I mean, I had I had literally no idea what I was doing. I went with three of the. Um, uh, guys from the cross country team in college. We slept on my parents' floor the night before, and and drove to Boston. And to to be quite honestly, the event itself, you know, I, re I remember a lot of those that, you know, starting in the excitement and the fear and not knowing what to do and wearing, you know, cotton tube socks and uh, Adidas leather country shoes because that's what that's about all that was available but what was interesting was is you know I was I was in school majoring in phys ed and very very um uh very very interested in first aid and um exercise science which you know that that came later so running along I came across um <laughs> somebody in and around mile 20 ish that was just struggling. Like I've never seen a person struggle before because I was very unfamiliar with a marathon and I wouldn't leave that person. It was like, you know, I was determined that this guy who I have no idea his name. I don't even, I, I can't even tell you much about it, but I wasn't leaving him. He was, finishing with me, even if we had to walk into the night. And I don't even know, I think when you look, 
back. I think my time was finally recorded because of Gloria Ratty, but I know that it was, you know, it was like somewhere near five hours or in and around that time. Yeah. Four, I think four hours and 50 minutes. Yeah. It was something, you know, it was something just short of where they were going to close down the finish line, but I was, determined that this poor guy with those calf cramps was was not given up at, at mile 20. And and my focus shifted from, you know, running the Boston Marathon to this this man has got it. He he's come this far. You know, he's going the rest of the way. If, if I have to put him on my back, he's going with me. Yeah, that's I mean that's such a fascinating story because <laughs> um you know I mean for, for anyone that's been in the sport of running, whether it's, whether it's road running, but I'm particularly thinking of trail running and specifically long distance, uh, trail running or even mountain running. Um, there, if we race long enough, we will come across someone who is in need of help at some point. Oh yeah. And, um, while most runners, while many runners would be inclined to stop and help, not all runners would be inclined to stop and help because the the truth is that there were probably hundreds of other Boston Marathon participants that ran by that gentleman that day. Oh, absolutely. But and you know, here you, but here you were, here you were really <laughs> having no experience in this type of thing. You've, you've, you've likely not had, you know, the opportunity to aid someone during an event to get them to the finish not only that, it's never happened to you before that you've needed someone to help you to the finish. And, and despite the fact that this was a completely novel thing for you, you still saw this gentleman in need and you gave assistance. It's called being naive, Chris. <laughs> well, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm look, you, you knew that you were not going to win the event that day. <laughs> Right. I mean, at some point you knew that yet, yet, yet. I, I think under those circumstances, you know, really our true personality and our character and our makeup comes forward. Okay. And and, and that says a lot about you as the, as a person that you would do that. And your first later, if it, if it was, if it were to happen again, wherever I'd probably do the same thing. Yeah, I I, I so don't. If I, I was on a, if I I was on a trail and I came across a person that was, you know, whatever, um, it, my attention would immediately would immediately shift. It's just yeah, I, 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 I don't <laughs> I don't I don't doubt that at all. Well, later later in 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 1973, uh, so later that year, in September of 1973, uh, you were a standout tennis player, as I said, at the at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Um, um, at the time that, um, one of the most famous tennis matches of all time took place at the Houston Astrodome, right. um, in, in September of 1973, I'm sure you remember this. Oh yeah. Billie Jean King, a superstar at the time, uh, took on Bobby Riggs, a 55 year old kind of washed up professional tennis player who had been a burr in Billie Jean King's saddle for quite some time, very much cajoling her, trying to, uh, you know, basically trying to humiliate her into playing a match against him. 
he had said a lot of very sexist uh, things. Um, and how much of it was theater, how much of it was actually coming from his heart, who knows? The point was that that Billie Jean King kind of kept him at arm's length for quite some time until yeah. she just couldn't take it anymore and decided that she would play him head to head in what was dubbed at the time and still is known today as the Battle of the Sexes. Right. It's 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 estimated that there were 90 million television viewers worldwide that watched that event. It, it is and, and, and probably will always be the most watched tennis match of all time. Right. So with, with your connection uh, to tennis, obviously, your, your love of the sport, the fact that you were a competitive tennis player at that time, uh, and also this sort of historical perspective of, of recently kind of going through Title IX and, and you know, you, you, you facing all of the adversity pre-Title IX of a, of a, of a, of a, of a woman in sports. Um, I'm curious, well, a couple of things I'm curious about. One thing is, did you watch the match? Yes. Okay. And, uh, well, <laughs> I suspect with 90 million people worldwide watching, it was probably a pretty good bet that you that you were watching. Um, so I, I'm curious um, wh what influence that match had on uh, on on you uh, personally. And before you answer that, I think I remember Billie Jean King <clears throat> saying something to the effect that she she really felt the pressure of women worldwide because you know at least in her, in her take, had she lost the match she felt like she would have she would have sort of rolled back time in the advancement of of women's sports uh so there was a tremendous amount of pressure on her to win what 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 influence did that did that sort of silly kind of theatrical uh made for tv uh event have on you you know to be quite honest it it, it it was it was theatrical to me. So in in some ways, I was I I had distinct mixed feelings. I was disappointed that she caved into doing it because I thought it was theatrics, and I'd rather see sports handled at the professional level rather than theater. Um, you know, I under I understood why it was being done. And, you know, had had she lost and then it went to that step of, you know, see, I told you this proves blah, 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 blah. I would have been really pissed, quite honestly, because it would have been, you know, you 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 did absolutely nothing to help women in sport. It, in fact, it, it fizzled and it, and it backfired. And, you know, I'm not really I. Personally, I, I don't know that it really had any impact because I thought it was more of um, theatrics. I, I don't know that all of a sudden, you know, little girls all over the U.S. were swinging tennis rackets and thinking that, you know, magic was going to fall down from the sky. Um, I think it was, you know, a made for a made for TV event where a lot of people made a lot of money. And it, it was a show. Yeah. Were you, were, were, were you a fan of Billie Jean King? Before? Very much. I, absolutely. In fact, when I was in college, I actually skipped a week of finals and went down to Pittsburgh when team tennis started 
and sat on a curb waiting to have a white tennis hat signed by her. So yes, um, without, without a doubt, you know, I only played at that time with, you know, Wilson Wood, Billie Jean King tennis rackets. Um, so yes. So even though I was like, you know, a huge fan and that was like, that was my idol in life at the time. I was disappointed that my idol in life kind of gave in to the other side. Yeah. She, I mean, she, she, to your point, she really put herself out there. Oh yeah. Um, because it, it, it could have backfired miserably for Absolutely. her and uh, unintentionally uh, could have backfired for, for, for all women in sport at that time. And again, remember the context, 1973 title nine had just been signed in, in, you know, into law. And we, we made the point that there were still many challenges to it to come, but title nine was seen as landmark legislation at the time. And things looked like right. they were starting to change uh, in a, in a very, in a very positive manner. Um, well, I, I, I find, I find that story, um, infinitely, infinitely fascinating. Um, you know, you clearly your, uh, your resume in, in ultra distance racing, uh, is, is long and it's decorated. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> to even attempt to go through uh, all of your ultra uh, marathoning accomplishments um, would 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 likely span multiple uh, podcasts, and so um, you know, I your 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 ultra marathoning resume is actually fairly well documented online. Um, and uh, I will I will be posting a link on my Twitter account um, for, uh, for the listener to, uh, to read, um, the, the, the complete list of accomplishments. But I, I did want to talk about a couple accomplishments, uh, in particular, because they are, they are standout, uh, events and that, uh, and one of them is the, the Santander, uh, 100K in Spain. Mm -hmm. Now you, 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 you participated in that event twice. Yes. But it was the second time that you participated in in September of 1981, that was um, that was quite remarkable in, in 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 for a number of different reasons. So um, at that time, um, or leading up to to September of 1981, um, you had set your intention to become the first woman to break eight hours at the 100K distance. At that time, um, one of your peers, uh, Sue Ellen Trapp, yep. held the record at eight hours, five minutes, and 26 seconds. I think I had, I had read somewhere, too, that um, while you were, you, you were familiar with Sue Ellen, presumably you had met her, the two of you really had not had the opportunity to race much head to head. Is that true? Yeah, I don't I don't think we ever did. I I don't I don't think. I don't I don't think we ever did. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, that's really that's really so so fascinating and and and, and very much un, unprecedented right in today's time where um you know, women's participation in ultra marathoning is, you know, is, is obviously, you know, exponentially higher than it was back then. Um, 
interesting that the two of you never cross paths, even though virtually speaking, <laughs> you were right. you were gunning for each other's records, right? Absolutely, yeah, Qu oh, yeah. quite a bit during your competitive uh, career. So, um, so before before we 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 get to the outcome um, of that hundred k. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you remember about uh, about racing through the streets of that uh, Spanish town in September of 1981. So I had, you know, I was familiar with the race organizer because I had been invited the year before. So um, when I was invited back, you know, one of the things I did was brush up on my Spanish so that I could uh, communicate more effectively. Um, because I did do some radio interviews and some things there, and I wanted to do them in Spanish versus English. Um, it was, it, I, I believe it ended up raining during part of it or drizzling, uh, but it was, it was also rather, rather humid. And it's an extremely, extremely um, hilly event. You know, it goes through like the Mediterranean part where Santander kind of sits and, very, very hilly, and um, it—it it wasn't like you—you know—you were there were long patches where you were just running by yourself against your, you know, your watch. Not much to really, you know, not it wasn't like there were spectators or other than other than enjoying the beauty of the course. It was pretty much you against a, you against a clock. Um, except for certain pockets, um, one of which was when I was in and around the Italian contingent and there was um, an Italian cyclist cheering on and riding with the um, Italian contingent. So it was, um, you know, a lot of jibber jabber between the cyclist and the, and the, uh, the runners from from Italy, who, you know, eventually, eventually, one what ended up happening is I excelled and they um, petered out a little bit. So when I came in third overall in that event, um, the cyclist and the one runner that he was with were were at that time, you know, questioning gender. Um, you know, that it was impossible for a 5'3 female from the U.S. to outrun Italian runners. And, um, you know, it was it, it was it was very subtle, but it was, you know, they, I mean, they they were very, very adamant about it. And like I said, fortunately, I knew the race organizing committee that was um very blunt about it, even in my broken Spanish that, you know, sorry, you know, you're, <laughs> she, you know, she, she is all woman this, this, and this, she just kicked your butts. This just, you know, bitch in the butt. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I still have like a lot of the newspaper stuff from, from there. There were a few things that I did save and, you know, I did my, uh, acceptance in Spanish and everything else. And it was just, you know, it was one of those experiences where still, you know, here we are now in 81 and you're, you're now on European turf at an, a, uh, world championship, you know, premier hundred K 
only invited elite runners. And, um, you know, there's like this, this questioning of, of how does that happen kind of thing. Well, so, and, and it was the, good. <laughs> the, the postscript of course, is that, uh, you finished in seven hours, 47 minutes and 28 seconds. You did right. indeed break eight hours yeah. for the hundred K at the, at the Santander 100 K that, that year. Um, well that, you know, that, that, that question about, uh, about gender identity is actually, it's actually quite topical. Um, you know, earlier this year, a University of, of Pennsylvania transgender swimmer named Leah Thomas caused some measure of controversy at the uh, at the Ivy League uh, Women's Swimming and Diving Championships, where uh, uh, Thomas, you know, dominated the the other uh, Ivy League women swimmers at at that particular meet. Now, Thomas was assigned the male gender at birth, uh, and, and actually competed on the, the men's team, men's swimming team for a couple of years before, um, right. before transitioning, uh, and, um, and identifying, uh, as, as a woman, um, that story created a tremendous amount of buzz nationally, um, when, when the, when the story broke and, um, you know, everyone sort of lined up in their camps and, uh, you know, and, uh, and argued, you know, their, their side of it. Um, what I'm, what I'm really curious about is your take on that, because I, I think you have a very unique perspective on this. Um, again, be, be, because, um, you know, you, you lived through and competed at a time pre title nine, that w women really were fighting <laughs> for, you know, e you know, equal participation in these sports and, right. and, um, and, you know, and, and again, to our point, uh, our earlier point, um, even after the, the, the legislation was enacted, it still was several years. And, and actually even to this day, some of the discrimination continues. So I I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, um, without getting you into hot water, I'm I'm curious about your take on um, gen genetically identified uh, genetically. I don't even know how to say it. This is how this is how awkward it is for me. What, what's your take on the Leah Thomas story? So I've 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 stayed away from discussion, except in extremely close circles of. of uh, of of friends and you know adversaries because um so to to put it, it i i have no issue with whatever gender people want to be it doesn't bother i you know what human beings are human beings to me and i've been like that my entire life i, I grew up that way but when it comes to the advantages of changing gender in most sports, a male's strength is always going to be stronger than a woman's strength. And I have enough background in physiology and, you know, we can go on estrogen and testosterone levels and we can go on and on and on and on. The fact, the fact is, is that, you know, the, the male body configuration, shoulder structure, bone structure, you know, without 
taking it to the to the extreme will be stronger so me personally i do not think that um men that identify as females should be able to i i think that they they should be able to play sport obviously i don't want i wouldn't want to punish someone for for um being the gender that they want to identify with but i i don't think you should be counted or within the competition or if you set a world record um that it 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 should be you know i hate to say it i i i don't i don't think it's even even playing field i think it i think it's wrong i i really do it's it's such a it uh, just listening to you carefully walk through that answer suggests that it's a very difficult issue to have have an opinion on um if uh, 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 again um, unless you have a very strong opinion either way um it, it is a it's a very very challenging issue you know uh, you, and i, you I don't not, know what the answer is uh, agree no i i i completely agree and I, I i feel very much like you you know and and interestingly enough you you and i have a very similar educational background we both studied exercise physiology and um and um and and so we I think you and I have a little bit different um, um, perspective on the physiology of sport. And the truth is, to your point, the truth is, I certainly think there are some sports in which men have an advantage because of the, the just the different physiology of men versus women. And swimming might be a pretty good example of that. And yet what also comes to mind is... <laughs> the the fact that recently and and actually i mean historically speaking as well because i'm i'm sure that uh you you beat your fair share of men during your during your time but 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 in the sport of ultra running for instance there's really not that much of a there's really i mean some would argue there's really no competitive advantage of the of the male physiology in the sport of ultra distance racing in fact there's some evidence that might suggest that women have the, the, a physiologic advantage when it comes to ultra distance racing right and so and I, and I think that's i think that's true i mean this goes all the way back to van aken in the in the you know in the 80s and the late 70s who really put it out there that in time with training that women would, you know, be closing the gap. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the mountain race or a lot of the ultra trail races, ultra mountain races, I mean, there are women that have won outright, you know, talented, talented women. And I think that um, in our sport, in, in ultra distance running, I, I don't think, gender plays into it as much as it does in um you know uh let's say gymnastics or um you know even in tennis you know just brute strength on um a, a, a racket swing and trajectory you know golf um certain certain sports but i i in when it comes into endurance i i, I do think that talented women 
and talented men are very, very close in the playing field. And it becomes no from there, you know, how well you take care of yourself over the time of that event, you know, how well you've trained and mental capacity comes in. I mean, let's face it, anything, anything, when you get into endurance, so much of it is, is mental capacity and, and what you're able to endure. And I don't think there's a, a difference in that playing field between genders. I would, I would, I would, agree, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think, I think that evidence is is certainly is certainly uh, bearing out. Um, you, you, you have um, described your proudest moment as an ultra distance athlete, um, as um, as as breaking six hours in the at the fifty mile distance. I mean, of, of all of your accomplishments, of all of the world records, of all of the all of the events that that you won, uh, and all of the first times <laughs> that you yeah. experienced. Um, again, I, I I remember reading that you described your proudest moment as breaking six hours uh, at the fifty mile distance. Um, wh why? Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about exactly how that happened. But um, wh why was? Why was that so? Why was that so important to you to 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 break six hours at the fifty mile distance? Because it was so damn hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, fair. And fair. I and you know that six hour barrier like had been looming for you know quite some time. I mean, many many attempted it, you know, in all over all over the world, and. Um, I trained to do that. I mean, like that was, I, I spent every breathing moment leading up to that, that it was, it was, it was going to happen. And, you know, granted it didn't happen by much, but the, the precision and, you know, everything that I did leading up to that, um, paid off. Yeah. So you, I mean, you, again if you if 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 you if you read through your historical archive of of racing i mean there was a time in which and probably for the majority of your career you raced a lot it wasn't unusual for you to run, to run back to back marathons not 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 right. literally back to back but within a few weeks of each other and 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 run at a really high level um seems to me that that was a race that you targeted as your a race that was a race that you built your training around um the event was the american medical joggers association yeah 50 mile championships now <laughs> i sleuthed a little bit on the american medical joggers association because because you know as a i mean i've i've been in the i've been in the, the field of exercise science for many decades and i have never heard of the american medical joggers association uh <laughs> what what do you know or what do you remember of the american medical joggers association it, I, it it's an organization in chicago and it okay. was you know it was it was relatively prevalent at the time and that that event was you know again premier 50 miler most people were invited and um it was very um you know that was still like when the aau was around i mean that was like to to the step the course was 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 measured and it was it was one of those you know 
old events, old organization, obviously, you know, being called Jogger. Um, but in Chicago and, and very, very, um, you know, very, very well known. Like if you made it to the, you know, AMJA, you, you made it to Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You, 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 you knew that you knew that you belonged if you, if you received an invitation. So your, <laughs> your PR at that, at the 50 mile distance before the race was six hours and 13 minutes. All right. So you, you were going to need to take 13 minutes off of your PR. Yeah. Now at the time, the world record was held by a, a Leslie Watson who at the time British. held the record yeah. at six hours and two minutes. Yeah. All right. So not only were you setting a PR, uh, you were also going to presumably be setting a world record if you could get in under six hours. All right. Um, so th th there was a little story about, about, about how the, how the event went for you. Um, and I, <laughs> this part, every marathon runner, every ultra marathoner will appreciate this that your marathon split on that day was two hours and 53 minutes. You averaged six minutes, 36 second miles for the first 26.2 of a 50 mile race. Yep. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are many, many runners who would dream of being able to run 636s for a 10K this was your marathon split. Now it was described that um, around the thirty-mile mark, you started to fizzle a little bit. What what do you <laughs> what do you remember after after getting that marathon split at two fifty-three? Uh, what what happened after that? Well, it was it was like oh shit! It was supposed to be two fifty-seven. So <laughs> um, gone out too hard. We a little little bit a little bit fast and um I it, I think I was I think I was developing um a little bit of a uh, Achilles issue. But um a a a bike a bike came out and um told me that if I slowed i i want to say it was eight seconds a mile and i i could be wrong you know it's you know that aging thing um <laughs> that if i if i slowed you know eight seconds a mile i could still squeak under six hours i wasn't confident enough to slow that much so i you know kind of went along as a little bit slower just by you know attrition if you will Yep. And then as we were getting to the last 10 K he was, okay, you have to pick it up by five seconds a mile to squeak in under six hours. Um, and, and, and so I did, and he, he biked maybe, I don't know, not quite the length of a football field in front of me asking anybody that was on the route to move over like just because it's it's run along the chicago lakefront yeah and it was, was it was a it was an open course right i mean right, they were just right, people out out off. for a out for a daily out for their daily walk enjoying the day so um you know with with that it was you know you're either going to do it or you're not <laughs> that's that's kind of what it came down to so you 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 put the pedal to the metal, 
you gave with it a, with you, a little a little bit of wiggle room you gave it Not everything much. you got <laughs> and you finished in 59926 yeah averaging 7 minute 11 seconds per minute per mile for the 50 mile distance and not only setting your own PR, but setting the world record at that time as well. Um, what? So why? I mean, I, I mentioned that that you had mentioned that it was one of your proudest moments of all of your accomplishments. Um, yeah. Why? What, what? What? I think because I. Why is that? I knew what it was going to take to to do that, and. You know, like I said, I mean, I went to Chicago specifically to go out after that goal. And, you know, and, and stupidly, I was I was very brazen about saying, you know, that's what I'm doing. So um, I think to, you know, uh, know what it's going to take to accomplish something, put in all the work to try and get there, be a little bit outspoken to those that you're close to that you're going for it and then achieve it. Um, it doesn't happen that often. It, it, it just, it, you know, it just doesn't. So I, I think knowing how difficult that was um, and also the, you know, the prestige of the event itself um, was, was probably one that, you know, will, will, will always remain, you know, that one, like gotcha moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, um, you know, d during, during the, 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 the time that you were, um, that you were a competitive, um, ultra distance athlete, um, and, 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 I mean, I, <laughs> you, you, you have, you, you have been, you, you have mentioned, um, before that, um, it was the, well, it, even though, you know, you, you, you still were, you still were racing, um, uh, and still race even to this day, but at some point you, you mentioned that you went from being a competitor to being a participant that, that being said, you still have been involved in the sport of running, whether it's road running or track running, um, mountain running, trail running, ultra distance. Um, you've seen a tremendous amount of evolution um, in 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 sport uh, and outdoor recreation uh, uh, over that period of time, specifically for women. I'm curious, um, you know, during during all of this time. Um, what, what, what do you feel like has been some of the, I mean, you mentioned it a, a little bit earlier, uh, in terms of equipment, but what, what, what do you think has been the greatest advances in, uh, in, 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 in women in sports, particularly women in, in outdoor sports or out, outdoor recreation during that time? Well, I think, you know, again, I mean, I was involved in the industry as well. So, um, it, I'll go back to, you know, 60s 60s 70s there wasn't for the most part women's specific equipment um you know you converted male running shoes to a smaller size there wasn't really um you know women's running shorts and and and, and like we can go way beyond running if you look at now it's it's a you know it's a whole industry i mean everything from footwear to apparel to 
um, backpacks, uh, hiking gear. You know, you can pick any, you can pick any sport you want in the outdoors. There's female specific fitted apparel and, and, and equipment. And I think that's, I think that's made it huge because it's, um, it's very inclusive. So if you're, if you're a brand that's out there and you haven't jumped on the women's bandwagon, you're, you know, you're standing on an Island by yourself for the Mm -hmm. most part. Um, yeah, and let, so let, it's made it, you know, it's made it so inclusive. You, it's, it's, it's allowed young girls playing any sport, you know, starting from golf to use proper equipment and have the, the, the right piece of apparel, right piece of equipment for the sport that they're, you know, starting to participate in. Yeah. And you, and you, uh, you, you mentioned that, that you, you, um, you were in the industry for, for many years, still, still associated with the, with the outdoor recreation yes. and apparel industry. Even, even today, you still have an association with it. Um, b- based on your experience, fr- uh, from purely a sales standpoint, um, when you, when you compare, um, men's sporting equipment, um, sales to women's sporting equipment sales are, are they equal um is it i mean is it is it is it two to one men to women in terms of like i'm just I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how much why the why the why these industries would 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 pay attention to 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 women what why they would what i mean i i, I guess i kind of understand why they would but let's face it <laughs> everything's driven by 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 dollars and cents right so there has yeah. to be some financial incentive for these uh, apparel companies um to market and to create product specifically for women with with your understanding and your your experience in the industry what what is what what do sales figures generally look like in terms of these things men versus women it, I, it really depends upon the sport because there, there'll always be more, you know, male participation in, in many sports. And, you know, if you're looking like at the footwear industry, I, I shouldn't say foot, footwear in general. So take certain sports, there would be more models created in male sizes versus female sizes, right? So, um, but what is created for women is 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 excellent and does and does quite well in you know in apparel in most industries um it's it's relatively even but when you get to some of the more extreme sports there's more options for men than there are for women. But, you know, look what's happened with mountain biking and fat biking. You know, there are now women-specific models. Uh, You know, I'll go back to, I'll go back mm, eight-ish years ago. Well, let me go back 10 years. There really weren't women-specific fat bikes, or for that matter, maybe some of the companies had women-specific mountain bikes, a model you know, that was the token female pink bike or something. Um, and now, you know, it, that's a, that's a whole industry unto itself. I mean, even, even the automobile industry caters to, um, to women. So it's, I, there's, there's a huge, there's a huge market there. 
And women also have the buying power generally in most families. They're the decision maker. They're the ones that are doing the shopping for the whole family. So you've got to include them when they're out shopping for husbands and sons. You've got to include, you know, the, the female of, of, of a family as well. And, you know, and it, and it works the opposite too. There never used to be male yoga apparel, right? It was always female. So it went the opposite way. And a number of companies have now jumped into male yoga apparel. So the softer side of sport or recreation, you know, transformed over to, to the male side when it was pretty much dominated by, by females as well. So I think it's, you know, again, if you want to, if you want to have everybody out there doing, doing sports, you have to have the right outdoor equipment. You know, unfortunately, you know, we we do have those backpacks and running vests and poles and skis and snowshoes and things that are geared towards the, the, the female recreator. And it's not going away. It's definitely growing. Yeah. So I, 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 I suspect that I suspect that that most apparel companies um, are are reactive in other words, they 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 see an increase in trend and participation in a particular activity or sport, and they create product to meet that demand. What I'm what I'm curious about from you is in your experience in the industry, have you ever seen a company actually drive participation in the sport? In other words, not wait to react to an increase in female participation, but actually create product and help to drive participation in a sport. Has that ever happened? Um, I think in the fitness industry, yes. I think that, um, you know, go back to aerobics when it was referred to more as aerobics, that was clearly creating footwear and apparel for women, for the most part, by women from a company that started that whole aerobics revolution, you know, from, from step to um, the BOSU ball to a number of things that was, that was created by a company to drive a, a fitness movement. So um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's actually a really that's a really really great example. They they created a movement. They created a phenomena. The phenomena didn't exist and they reacted yeah. to it by providing equipment. They actually created the phenomena. Um <laughs> and people bought right. into they, it. They, they they absolutely that's exactly yeah. yeah, that's a yeah, that's a that's a that's a really it's a fascinating phenomena. Well, what what I what I want to finish with uh, today, Marcy, is um, I'm I'm really I'm really interested in getting your take on um, on successful aging and what and what that means to you now. Um, and um, again, as as someone who has dedicated their life to health and fitness. Not only, by the way, not only your own um, um, health and fitness, but you've worked in the health and fitness industry. You've also, um, in, in in any number of different levels, from the uh, from the retail side to the uh, to the health and fitness promotion side. Like you've you've literally you've literally done it 
done it all. I'm curious now um, uh, about what 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 your take is on on for you. What defines successful aging for you now? <laughs> Remembering how to get home after a run. No. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> um, very, that's a good start. You know, I, I think you still have to, um, you know, you still have to set goals. And if, you know, let, let, let's face it, body parts get worn out. Some parts get worn out. You know, are you ever going to be, um, you know, getting faster after a certain point in, in time? Probably not. It depends where you started from, you know, um, but you, you have to, you, you adjust your goals and, and make them realistic. You know, I'll, I'll be 70 next year. And, and trust me, I have a whole fantasy world that I live in about that age group. Is, is it realistic? I wouldn't write it off. Um, but you know, that, that, that 2023 for me is, um, there's a, there's a lot of things to, to nip away at. Um, you know, if, if, if you're still, if you're still vertical and able to do it. And I think some of the things, you know, you have to, um, I'm not a good one to ask cause I'm kind of a body abuser. So, um, I know better from a, my own background education, but I, I also know that, that moving is, you know, just, just so important. You know, I'm very, very active on the board. I'm on the board of directors for, you know, the town that I live in, our, our council on aging and um, spend a lot of time not letting people age. And um, it, it, it's never, it's never too late to set a goal, no matter, no matter what it, what it might be. So in, in terms of aging, you know, there's, there's a number, obviously, you know, we all, we all age, but, um, you don't have to be that number. You can be, you know, a lot younger than what the number says you, you should be. And I think that, you know, we're, I mean, we're seeing that with, with so many people in, in all sports now. I mean, if you follow any, any sport there are there are such talented um senior athletes if you will that are that are out there and you know i mean again look at all the masters games and um the the whole the whole division that is is very very competitive um in 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 track and field and swimming and tennis and cycling and just about everything now there's a you know, there's a master's or veterans, whatever it's, you know, whatever it's appropriately called, um, separate games for, for, you know, those, those individuals. And I, you know, the industry is, again, the industry is seeing that too. I mean, this is, this is one of the largest populations in the United States right now. Um, most with, or many with, you know, the disposable income the time to dedicate to recreation and sport. And um, I, 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 think, I think aging is a state of mind, quite honestly. I mean, unfortunately, you know, illness and, and genetics and heredity play a role. But if you're fortunate enough to um, not live with any of those, um, you know, 
negative genes, um, not have any of these, you know, comorbidities. Uh, you, you go on and you set those goals. Don't, you know, there's no such thing as too old to do something. Do you, do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder about, about how the sort of the last third of your running career might have turned out differently if that last third of your running career say was happening now with all of the advances in in sports medicine and sports and sports nutrition and training practices um do, do, do you ever wonder if you lived in a in in this era if 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 you would have been able to extend your high level every of competitiveness day. like another 10 years every day without without a doubt but yeah yeah you know it's you know we're we're all born at a certain period of time and no uh, no doubt you, you no know, there's no there, there's no there's no doubt it. about it no there's, but there's no doubt about that what you can help do is contribute to it you know so use you know, use your knowledge and expertise to um, keep keep moving it forward. And, um, you know, you know, ap absolutely. If if some of the things that were available 30 years ago. That are available now were available 30 years ago, you know, apps. Absolutely. I think it would be, um, you know, but. The yeah, the story, the story might, might have, the, the, the last few chapters of the story might have been a little Could different. have been, could, it would definitely have uh, potentially been different. Let me, let, let me, let me finish with this last question that I have for you. Um, with everything that you, that you accomplished in the sport of ultra distance racing and whether or not, you know, arguably whether or not you, you, you know, you received the credit that you deserved or not, um, be that as it may, your, as I've said before, your ultra distance racing resume and pedigree um, w will stack up against anyone's from this point forward. My question to you, last question to you is this, um, what's the best advice that you can give that you would give any ultra marathoner now, whether that's someone say, who's just starting in the sport or someone who's just is really looking to break through and, uh, and, 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 and get that first, uh, say ultra distance, uh, finish what's of, from all of your years of experience, what's, do, do you have a, do you have a, a pearl or a few pearls of wisdom um, for, for ultra marathoners? I think it's, um, you know, a, a associate and learn from those that have either been there or are going in the same direction as you and, and, you know, learn from somebody else's insight and don't, don't give up, don't give up the dream. Cause many are going to be told, you know, Ah, you can't do that. You're too short. You're too fat. You're too thin. You're, you know, your left foot does this, your right hip does that. And I think that if you have, if you have that dream and that goal, surround yourself with, with others that have similar dreams and goals and, and learn from them. You know, no, no, we're, we're, we no longer need to be on an island. So there's always, there's always somebody out there to, to learn something from. 
um, and the bet, you know, go, go into, go into an event being the most educated you possibly can be. That's, um, that's, that's really wonderful, wonderful advice. Marcy, uh, I, I really appreciated having the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you very much. Anytime. Loved it. Marcy is literally the kindest, most humble, incredibly amazing elite athlete you will ever meet. And don't be fooled. She may not be breaking world records any longer, but she is no less fierce a competitor when she pins on a race bib. And I've had the pleasure of watching and cheering her on at trail, mountain, and snowshoe races over the last several years. It's really an honor to call her a teammate and a friend. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at, at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.